Hey, welcome to Church Online at Riverpoint and West End Church. My name is Nathan and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading our Missouri City campus. So I wanna say a special shout out to those of you who I miss seeing so much every weekend. And hey to everybody who typically attends our Richmond or West End campus. And to all of you who've joined our online campus since this crazy pandemic started, we are so glad that you're a part of the family now. Now, for those of you who know me, you may have picked up on something that's true about me. I'm not saying this is a good thing. This is not a brag. And maybe a few of you are like me in this, but I like being right. I like knowing the correct answer. I like winning debates. I like arguing and bringing people over to my side. I love being right. Does this sound like anyone you know? Hey, no pointing if you're watching this with your husband or your wife. I'm not sure why it's such a big deal to me. I'm sure it has something to do with my upbringing or just the way that I'm wired. I have, I have a formal education in the art of argument. I'm super competitive and I was raised in a home where achievement in academics, i.e. knowing the right answer was praised. The problem this creates for me is that sometimes my desire to be right leads me to do and say some things that are very wrong. I can be the biggest jerk when I get locked in on winning an argument. Surely some of you watching today can relate to this. Have you ever been in an argument fully aware that you are right and you're arguing because you want or need the other person to see that you're right and to agree with you so that they can be right too? Or maybe like me, you've held an opinion about someone and others don't seem to agree. So you look for examples or opportunities or situations to prove that it's not really an opinion at all. What you believe about that person is just a fact that cannot be disputed. If any of this sounds like you or maybe someone you know, then my hope is that today's story is as helpful for you as it has been for me. Because in this story, we see that being right isn't always what it's cracked up to be. Now, this is my favorite story of Jesus in the entire Bible. And if you've read the gospel of John, you've probably heard this story before. But as we read it today, I want you to pay special attention to the groups of Pharisees and scribes who are confronting Jesus. We read in the gospel of John chapter eight, starting in verse two, and it says this. It says, at dawn, he, talking about Jesus, went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. So here's the situation. Prior to Jesus arriving on the scene, the people in that area would look to the scribes and the Pharisees for wisdom and answers to their questions about life. But as Jesus started to gain followers, these groups felt threatened. And so they began to look for opportunities to attack his credibility. So one day, as Jesus is teaching, a group of these men bring a woman into the temple and try setting a trap for Jesus. As the story says, this woman has been caught quite literally in the act of committing adultery. And these guys bring her into the most publicly humiliating place possible to confront Jesus. 
They must think that they've set the perfect trap. If he says, don't stone her, then all of Jesus's new followers might question his commitment to God's laws. But if he says, stone her, then all of the teaching that he had done on mercy and compassion and forgiveness and love would seem to be disingenuous. So what does Jesus do? Given the two options, condemn or condone, he chooses neither. After stooping down to write on the ground, thus taking a minute to diffuse what must have been an awful experience for this woman, Jesus said to them, he said, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. These words communicate many things. And Jesus knew that there was so much more to the story. Here's a little more context for this statement in this situation. Back in the day, the standard of evidence for the crime of adultery was very high. There had to be two witnesses and those two witnesses had to agree perfectly to what they had seen. Because of this standard, almost no one was executed for this relatively private sin at that time. So if dragging a woman into the public forum wasn't disgusting enough, what Jesus said exposed the fact that these men had plotted and schemed to set this woman up. It was a classic case of entrapment. Also, the last time I checked, it takes two to commit this crime. And there wasn't a man being dragged in the temple along with the woman. So we know that law and order weren't really at the heart of the matter. Jesus's response, let the one without sin among you cast the first stone, challenge these men to examine their own hearts. It's like he was saying to them, really guys, how far are you willing to go to prove me wrong? These men had to consider the role that they had played in leading this woman into a sinful decision. They had to examine their motives and come face to face with the reality that their desire to trap and harm Jesus had led them down a dark path of bad choices. This is the part of the story that's challenging for someone like me because I can identify with the bad guys in the story and you never want to identify with the bad guy in the Bible story. Many times I've made being right the end goal. And when being right about something or or winning is your end goal, you might find yourself doing all sorts of the wrong things to get there. Here's how this happens in my life. Maybe, Maybe it's true for you too. Because I'm right, I feel entitled to do whatever is necessary to prove it. I use my rightness as a weapon, just like these Pharisees and scribes did. The way they acted, it's like they were thinking, well, because we're right about this woman's sin, it doesn't matter how we treat her. Jesus's response is gonna show everyone that we've been right about him all along. That's worth whatever we have to plot and scheme and manipulate to prove. So in the end, the priority they placed on being right led them to missing the mark in many other ways. But the same is often true for us, right? We treat people poorly. Maybe we use people as a pawn in an attempt to make ourselves look better. Or we say things in the midst of a fight with someone that we love that are hurtful and mean, hoping that that will move them to back down and admit that we're right. It's so much easier to see the problems in someone else's life or to point out their flaws. It's, it's those places where they are clearly wrong and, and we're not. But take note of how Jesus handled things. For Jesus, the main thing in this situation had nothing to do with the woman being right or wrong by the letter of the law. Notice he didn't ever say that the mob was wrong. In fact, Jesus's final words to the woman show us that he agreed that what the woman had done was sin. It was wrong to do what she had been caught doing. However, his response led men, led these men to reflect on their own actions and role in the whole ordeal. And it made clear that there was an impact on them because John says that one by one, the scribes and the Pharisees dropped their stones and filed out of the temple. Jesus also used this situation to show compassion to the woman and to gain an audience to encourage her. 
Remember what her final questions to her were? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And when she answered, no one, my Lord, he responded, neither do I. Now go and do not sin anymore. In the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, in the world that we're working toward, the world that we're looking forward to, mercy triumphs over judgment. People were more than their problems and mistakes. And nurturing our relationships is more important than being right or making people pay for their mistakes. Here's where you and I fit into this, okay? If we're honest, almost all of us struggle with this issue from time to time. If you're like me, and I hope you're not, you've done something or said something or acted a fool in an argument, maybe, maybe on Facebook or written a mean email. And when you're confronted with your behavior by someone else or, or maybe just your own conscience, you've said or thought, but I was right. There are so many things we form strong opinions about these days, how, how best to deal with this pandemic, the, the right time to go back to school or back to church, the most effective way to address the problems we see with racial injustice. I'm not saying that healthy debate and dialogue aren't necessary in our current time, but please don't let being right lead you to act like a jerk. What's the point in winning an argument if in doing so you lose ground in your relationship? How important is having the upper hand when there's no longer another hand to shake? Maybe your issue is less about being right than it is about wanting to see other people being punished for being wrong. The way Jesus treated the woman in the situation really confirmed what he said earlier in John 3:17. We all know John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the verse right after that says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That word condemn, it's a kind of a legal term. It's like, we, it's like we sentence somebody to a punishment and then we carry out that punishment. That's not what Jesus came to do. This might shock some of you, but Jesus didn't come to earth so that people who messed up would be punished. Jesus came for the broken and the hurting and the dirty and the messed up folks, folks like you and me. He came to save us and show us a better way. He offers forgiveness and encouragement that sounds something like, go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Even when we're right, Jesus is calling us to something deeper, something better. He's calling us to show compassion and grace and to examine our own motives and our heart and our role in the bigger picture of things. I want you to try something this week, okay? Think about the person that you disagree with the most. For you, maybe it's your spouse or, or your sibling or a coworker. And I want you to give that person permission to use this phrase with you the next time you two are having a, let's call it a heated conversation. Here's the phrase. Why does it matter so much for you to be right? Why does it matter so much for you to be right? Now, listen, this is gonna be really hard for me because my wife, my, my family, my team, they are all well aware of how much I love being right. And they're all watching this message. So I'm preparing to hear that phrase many times in the coming weeks. Why does it matter so much for you to be right? But I need to hear that because I know that this is an area where I can grow. If we can be reoriented to care about the hearts and the souls of people more than we do about seeing them punished or exposed or proved wrong, then we'll become more like Jesus. And the people in our lives will see God at work and their lives will be better for it. But this is where a relationship with God is key because without God's help, all we've got is, is good advice and the best of self-help techniques to try and change our hearts and minds. Heart change is God's domain. 
And it starts with you asking him to come into your life as Lord and Savior. That's, that's the key to becoming more like Jesus. Like the woman dragged into the temple and the men who drug her there, you and I have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. We sin. And in doing so, we create problems for ourselves and the people around us. And the Bible teaches that the fair punishment, the condemnation for our sin is death. But God, just like Jesus in the story, has shown compassion and grace. And he's made a way for you and for me to be forgiven and to live in a relationship with him now and after our time on earth comes to an end. Jesus took our punishment when he died on a cross so that we don't have to face it ourselves. When you ask God for forgiveness, your sins are erased and God no longer sees your sin, but the righteousness and perfection of Jesus in you. As your Lord and your leader, he gives you 24 seven access to him in the form of his Holy Spirit that will counsel and guide you through everything that comes your way. If you'd like to experience this kind of relationship, if you'd like to experience this kind of heart change and become more like Jesus, I hope that you'll pray this with me today. Heavenly Father, I am, I am far from perfect. God, it's not just mistakes that I make. God, there are times when I choose to do the wrong thing, fully aware that what I'm doing and what I'm saying is wrong. I sin and because of that, I need to be forgiven. So God, I pray that you would forgive me for the places that I fall short of your standard. God, I pray that you would embrace me, that you would, you would accept me. Um, Father, I know that Jesus died on a cross uh, in my place, that he accepted my punishment and I believe that he rose again. Father, I invite you into my life to be my Lord, to be my savior, to be my leader. And God, I'm trusting you to do the heavy lifting and changing my heart and my mind to become more like you so that I can be a blessing to the people around me and I can experience what a relationship with you can provide. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. If any of you prayed that prayer with me today, I'd love to hear about it. In fact, I'd love to meet you for coffee. We can sit outside or wear masks, whatever it takes. Send me an email, would you? It's nathan at rpc.me. Love to see you guys next week. We'll see you then.